Good morning, kingdom people of Woodland Hills. You look marvelous. You look marvelous. Glad that you made the choice to be here. Appreciated that worship and the anointing that's there. And in Christ alone we stand. And oh, I just get blessed by that song. Everything you need, everything you really need is found in him and in him alone. Amen? Amen. And uh, with Sean, I want to congratulate our kids for uh, raising that money for, for uh, the work in Haiti. Uh, we have together raised around $47,000 uh, for that work. And I just am so, in this economy, that is, that, that, that's marvelous. And I just appreciate the way that this church has responded over and over again uh, to needs that are out there and uh, making sacrifices uh, for the kingdom to go, for, to go forward. So my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor at Woodland Hills Church and the main teacher. And we're in the middle of a three-week, at least what we planned on being a three-week. It may evolve. Who knows? Spirit leads, you know. But um, it was a planned three-week series uh, that we're calling Kingdom Economics. It's about bringing the kingdom to our finances. What does it mean to bring our uh, pocketbook and our bank accounts under the lordship of Jesus Christ? And um, so we talked a little bit about last week, uh, laid the foundation for this. And this week we're going to go a little further with this and really get kind of practical. That's not something that comes natural to me. I tend to be kind of one of these, I like to stay in the realm of theology and whatnot. But fortunately, fortunately for you, I have a team of people around me who are always keeping my feet on the ground saying, okay, we've got to chunk this down and make it practical. Uh, so the next couple of weeks we're going to be getting really practical, taking questions uh, that we've uh, gotten from people in the congregation and really kind of tailoring messages uh, towards that. Uh, there's three particular questions I'll be looking at this morning, and they all involve, in one way or another, what does it mean to trust God? So I'm entitling this message, uh, In God We Trust, meaning what does that mean to say we're putting our trust in God and not in mammon? Uh, so before I even jump into this, I'd like to, to open with a word of prayer. Pray with me. Uh, Father, I thank you, God, for every person in this congregation and every person who's listening through podcast or television or any other means, CD. Whatever, whatever means. I thank you, Lord God, for the way you've been involved in their life up to this point. And now, Lord, I pray that you would use this moment as a kingdom moment and use it, Lord God, to uh, invade our lives, maybe more thoroughly, more intensely, more deeply than ever before. And I pray, God, that you would set your people free, set us free from the bondage to mammon. Uh, and, and wake us up to the system and the way that we are sometimes played. God, just use this message. Anoint it with your power to build your kingdom. Words alone we know can't do that. A speech can't do that. Human reasoning can't do that. Only you and you alone is the power to build your kingdom. So, Lord, I just surrender to your sufficiency. I'll say what you've put on my heart, but I know, Lord God, that, that you have to impregnate this with your authority to build your kingdom. Do it, Lord, right here, right now. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Before I even get to the questions, uh, here's a little statistic. I, not a little statistic, it's pretty big, actually. I found this in the newspaper on Thursday, I think it was. Uh, the Treasury Department reported a deficit of $220.9 billion for the month of February in the U.S., 2010. That means in February, only in February, uh, we, the government spent... Uh, $220.9 billion more than it took in. That's for one month. Uh, that beats the old record, by the way, which was last February. And it beats it by 14%, which is a lot. The same article said that the deficit, uh, the projected deficit for this year, 
is uh, $1.56 trillion. That's a lot of zeros. And it just goes to show that, that we, we are living on credit, a lot of credit. And I don't want you to read into that any sort of political point or, or anything like that. That's not my point here. I allude to that statistic simply because it's symptomatic of something much bigger that we need to be aware of. As I said last week, it shows that we're part of a cultural and economic and spiritual system that has been feeding the beast, the beast of mammon. Jesus refers to mammon, which means wealth, but he refers to it as a beast. We've been feeding this beast for centuries. We're part of a system that does that. And so we're conditioned to believe that... um, uh, that, that the future will always uh, pay for the present. We're conditioned to live beyond our means. We're conditioned to borrow against the future. And we see that in the way that many Americans, most of us actually, uh, spend our money. And we see it in our pocketbooks, in our bank accounts. And we see it in our government. And it's what's to be expected given the conditioning that we are all a part of. And unfortunately, uh, for a lot of reasons, but unfortunately... For this reason as well, the future is not an inexhaustible resource that you can borrow against. Sooner or later, the bubble bursts. Sooner or later, it's payday. Sooner or later, the beast bites us. And as of 2007, we've been officially bitten. Uh, We're in the middle of, or maybe hopefully coming out of, the worst recession we have seen since the Great Depression. And that has really caused a lot of hardship to a lot of people, and I have nothing but empathy for that. But at the same time, it's a marvelous opportunity for us kingdom people to step back and reassess the situation and ask, what has our relationship been to mammon? Have we perhaps been co-opted by this beast? Is is, is the way that we steward God's resources uh, consistent with the kingdom? Or have we to some degree been in bondage to this beast called mammon? And I know that for a lot of people, this is not at all an academic question. Anything but an academic question. There's a lot of people uh, in this congregation or who listen through podcasts who are, are really struggling, struggling with, with financial issues they never thought they would have. Some folks really thought they were on solid ground and had a pretty solid plan for the future, and that all got evaporated, or much of it got evaporated very suddenly, starting with two, in 2007. And some people are there saying, asking the question, what did I do wrong? How did I get into this mess with all this debt over my, on my head? And some have a sense of shame, a sense of guilt, and worry about being judged. The thing is, is this, that, well, we need to always, I, I, undoubtedly, there's probably decisions you wish you didn't make that got you into the position you're in now. Uh, we're human beings. We, we sometimes make unwise decisions, and sometimes just carnal decisions. So we, I mean, we need to own that. But at the same time, And this is why I last week uh, kind of talked about the beast and the whole system that we're part of. When you understand the dynamics of the system and the principalities and powers, you begin to realize that in in some sense, we're all victims here. We're being played. We take responsibility for our decisions for sure, but there is something bigger going on here, and we need to be aware of that. And the call of the kingdom, as we said last week, is to defy the beast, to buck the system. So last week, we laid the foundation by putting this in in a warfare context. And by talking about how we need to break the silence and, and get real with where our money goes and invite others in on that discussion to discern the will of God with our finances. And now I want to get a little more practical. So there's three questions. I've got a lot of great questions coming in. 
That's why we may go an extra week. I don't know. But, um, and I really appreciate, uh, and, and many of these questions, there's just such a sincere heart to bring the kingdom to their mess. And, and they're seeking God's will. And I want to know what God's word says about these various questions. So I'm going to take three questions here. Um, and, uh, and just kind of you know, bring the Bible and, uh, and, and some other principles to these questions. So question number one. Does having a savings account show lack of trust in God? Does having a savings account show lack of trust in, uh, in God? And it may be that there's some here who think that that's a ridiculous question, but it really isn't. And actually, given what the scripture says, is a very reasonable question. One person who asked the question alluded to this passage. Uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well, referring to the things of the world, the things that you need. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Think about that. It seems that if seeking first the kingdom of God, which simply means your highest ambition in life is to live consistently under the reign of God, if that is your highest priority, then Jesus is saying you can trust God to meet your daily needs and you don't have to worry about the future. So why should you have a savings account? Isn't that evidence that you're not trusting God? And I've known people at Woodland Hills Church who have come to that conclusion. You don't need a savings account. Some people thought it cardinal to have a retirement account. We'll talk a little bit about that a little later on. A few people even have come to the point of saying, well, gosh, if we're really supposed to just trust God uh, to meet our daily needs, we don't have to work. And um, uh, I, I would counsel you against that conclusion. Yes, you trust God, but one of the ways he meets your needs is by working, and the Bible tells you to work, so stay employed if you have employment. But, but it's a reasonable question. It's a reasonable question. Now, it's really clear from this passage, isn't it? Matthew 6. That if living under the reign of God, being submitted to the reign of God is our highest ambition, as it should be, then, then it, it can free us from anxiety about the future, worrying, compulsive worry about the future. To the degree that we're surrendered to God, all other things being equal, some, there's sometimes chemical issues that people deal with, but all other things being equal, to the degree that we're genuinely surrendered to the reign of God, there's a peace in our life that passes understanding, amen? And we can be freed from worry, Jesus says, as carefree as the birds of the air and the flowers in the field. This is, I think, one of the priceless treasures of living a kingdom life is that there is this peace available to us that others don't have. We can be, ought to be freed of anxiety about the future. But it's one thing to not have anxiety about the future, and it's quite a different thing not to plan for the future. Two very different things. While there's no place in the kingdom for this compulsive worrying and anxiety about the future, there is an important place for planning for the future. Because the Bible teaches us that that is wise. That is wise. For example, in Proverbs 6 it says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Uh, sluggard is just a lazy person who's not working. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food in harvest. What the passage is really saying there is, you sluggard, have the wisdom of an insect. <laughs> Even the ants know that there are times of plenty and times of leanness, so you need to think about the, the possibility of future leanness and save some time, some of what you have, in times of plenty. Savings is, is, is a wise thing to do. Also, Proverbs 21 says, The wise store up choice food and oil, but fools gulp theirs down. 
The fool is one who does not have any self-discipline. The fool is one who can't delay gratification. The fool is a person who doesn't consider the fact that tomorrow you may not have what you have now or next week or or next year. So you put some aside. You delay instant gratification now in order to set some aside for the future. The fool is one who can't do that. The wise person is one who thinks ahead, plans for the future, and plans for the uncertainty of the future, the possibility of, uh, of emergencies. So saving for, for, the, for future plans and for possible future emergencies is not contrary at all to trusting God. In fact, it's a sign that you trust God because God's the one who tells you to do it. So trust his wise advice. Save. There you go. I uh, read... Uh, a book, one of the books I read in preparing for this uh, series was a book called The New Frugality by Chris Farrell. It's not a Christian book. He's just an economist who gives some uh, real good practical advice and does kind of a nice job uh, showing the historical dynamics uh, that are at play right now. And one of the things he argues in this book, The New Frugality, is that one of the greatest, if not the greatest shortcomings of uh, Americans when it comes to finances is that over the last 50 years, We've, we've lost the discipline of living frugally. We've lost the discipline of having a savings. Over that period of time, our savings have shrunk more and more. So the margin of safety has gotten less and less. It's just been disappearing, which is one of the reasons why our stress levels go higher and higher. Because people are living paycheck to paycheck. You're one or two or three months away from being thrown out on the street. In 2005, for the first time since 1929... Americans saved a negative 0.2%, which means we didn't save at all. We actually spent more than we took in. Apparently, we're taking lessons from our government. Uh, and that's not a good thing to do. Um, there was zero, less than zero savings account. In that year. Now, it's recovered a little bit. We, things have changed in the last couple of years because of the recession, and that's a good thing. But we're still pathetic at savings, storing up for the future. And that shouldn't surprise us because, as we said last week, there's been a very intentional uh, sort of programming that's been going on since their 30s and 40s. People who are taking the, 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 the technology devised through psychoanalysis and mind control and things of that sort and using media to brainwash us, to get us to feel as though our wants were needs and we gotta have it now. And to get us to believe that the future is an inexhaustible resource that we can borrow against, so we live more and more on credit, put aside less and less and less. We live beyond our means. We, we are being programmed, according to the biblical definition, of a fool. A fool who gulps all your food and oil now and doesn't think about, doesn't plan for the future. And, and kingdom people, as I said last week, it's time for us to wake up, amen? It's time for us to defy the beast. It's time for us to realize what's been going on. It's time for us to step outside of this stream of programming. It's time for us to get the wisdom of ants and and, and to start setting some stuff aside and to live beneath our means rather than above our means. Now, some people have asked, what's the biblical teaching on how much we should save and how much we should keep for ourselves? And there is not a formula to, to, to give on that. There's not like a one size fits all. This is the kind of thing where we need to each seek God and seek God in community with others. I always encourage that because everything in the, in, in the kingdom is meant to be done in community. But seek God's wisdom on how much we should live off of, how much we should save, and how much we should give. So th- there's no one kind of percentage that you can give to everybody, but there is a general principle. And I think the principle was expressed beautifully by John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, when he said this, make as much as you can 
Save as much as you can and give as much as you can. Beautiful. Make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. That is biblical wisdom right there, folks. Make as much as you can. Folks, there's nothing wrong with that, man. Go out and make a ton of money. That's wonderful. That's very, very biblical. Kingdom people who are called to be employed um, ought to be passionate workers. Because we're not just doing it for earthly mammon. We have a higher purpose that we should bring to everything. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3. Listen to this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Whether you're a plumber or a street sweeper or or an administrator, or a financial director, or an IT person, or an author, do it with all your heart. Why? Because you should do it as though you're working for the Lord, not human masters. Jesus is our employer. And our ultimate purpose for earning money is to further the kingdom. So earn lots of money. In Jesus' name, I want to bless this congregation to have some millionaires here. Nothing wrong with that. Amen? Do it. Go earn a lot of money. Wealth, as I said last week, is dangerous. We have to be aware of that. It's very dangerous. There's a principality and power that uses that. And we've got to be wary of greed and how it can suck us in. But if you're a kingdom person and are aware of that, well, now that wealth can become a tremendous, powerful tool that you, you use to advance the kingdom. Nothing wrong with making a lot of money, but don't spend it all. So save as much as you can. Never spend all you earn. In fact, John Wesley was a big advocate for the biblical concept of simplicity, live as simple as you can. Live off as little as you can. Seek God's will about the standard of living you're called to live at and, and then lock it in and stay there because there will be a continual influence of the principalities and powers to lure you into this American dream thing where you always want more, you want it bigger, you want it better, you want it more impressive or what have you. That's always going to be there. So lock it in. Here's where God calls me to live. And you live simply, off as little as, as, as you can. Defy that, that, that American lie that says that because you can afford a bigger house, you should get the bigger house. Or you can afford the bigger car or afford the better clothes. That's a lie. Just because you can afford it doesn't mean you're supposed to get it. God's got to give you the green light or the red light on that stuff. Lock in the level you're supposed to live at and then set aside everything else. And some of what you set aside should be for planning for the future and for future emergencies, but not all of it. That's hoarding. Don't compulsively like, set aside everything and, and live in the, in, in, in the, the fear of worst-case scenarios. No, because the purpose of money ultimately is to invest in others, to help the poor, to help the needy, to further the kingdom. And so... Uh, as we go on in life, not all of it should be set aside, but give as much as you can, John Wesley says. Seek God's will on this and pour life, pour yourself out into investing in others and helping the poor and furthering the, the kingdom. Make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can, and on all three, seek God's will. Seek God's will. But it's wise to be setting aside some for the future and for emergencies, which leads to a second very important and slightly more Dicey question. Does saving for retirement show a lack of trust in God? Does saving for retirement show a lack of trust in God? And here, I've always covenanted with you, I will shoot straight. Uh, and so I will forewarn you that I, I may be stepping on a couple of toes here because I'm going to go after what I consider is a very damaging American idol. Um, and... Uh, I'll be as balanced as I can, but I'm, I'm going to shoot straight here. Okay, there's no, there's no problem. We've already, already settled this. No problem saving for the future. That is wisdom. 
But the question is not just should you save for the future in emergencies. The question is, concerning this American thing we call retirement, is it appropriate to be setting aside large sums of money, maybe shortchanging good things you could be doing now with that money, setting aside exorbitant amounts of money so that the last 10 or 20 or 30 years of your life you can do nothing or just do what you want to do or live like you're on vacation and maintain a high standard of living, whatever that may mean to you. That, I think, is very questionable. Jesus told a parable that I think addresses this specific point. And, and Holy Spirit, give us the boldness to hear this clearly. Uh, he's talking to this crowd in, in Luke chapter 12. And at one point he says, as he says many times, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Because they come in a lot of shapes and, and sizes. All kinds of greed. Be on, be on your guard against all of it. Because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he tells a parable to illustrate the point. The parable of this rich farmer. He, got, he gets this bumper crop. God just blessed him with all, so much crop, he, he couldn't even store it all. So then, starting in verse 18, he says, This is what I'll do. This rich guy says this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will you get? Then, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Now the problem here, clearly, is not just that the man set aside some savings, because that's wisdom. Some savings for the future and emergencies, that's wisdom. The problem is that this man was not rich toward God. And the way he wasn't rich toward God is because he took all of that surplus that God had blessed him with and he selfishly chose to hoard it for his own benefit. He was not rich towards God because he didn't submit that abundance to God and say, God, how would you have me uh, use this? How much should I keep? How much should I save? How much should I give? He didn't do that. Rather, he thought he'd cash in on his good fortune and now he's going to kick back and live life on easy street and kind of coast into the sunset. He was going to... As we say in America, he was going to retire on that abundance. That is the problem. He was, the Bible says, a fool. Now, I want to be clear on this. I want to be really balanced and clear on this. There's no problem planning for the future when perhaps you won't be able to work as you do now or maybe you won't be able to work at all. As you get older, your ability to engage in some kinds of employment lessens. So there's no, trouble, no problem planning for that. Nor is there a problem if you can afford it to plan for a future time when maybe you won't have to put in 40 to 60 hours at a company. And that will free you to be able to maybe do some of the things that you enjoy more that, that, that you weren't able to do earlier and spend more time with family and friends and, and invest more time in the kingdom. That's not, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. There's no problem with that. The problem, and it's a huge problem, is the way many, if not most, middle-class Americans think about this thing we've come to call retirement where you store up tons of stuff so you can treat the last 30 years of your life as though you were on vacation, so you can coast into the sunset doing nothing more than playing golf or going fishing or taking cruises around the world. And the problem is that that sounds just like this rich fool in the parable, does it not? I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry because I got it set aside. How is that seeking first the kingdom of God? And where do you find anything in the Bible that says that anybody has the right uh, to do that? 
to just coast the last 10, 20, 30 years of your life. Folks, I'm going to say it straight. In Jesus' name, look, the, uh, a Sabbath is coming. A Sabbath rest is coming. The Bible talks about that, book of Hebrews. And when it comes, it's going to last forever. But we are not there yet. And as long as you've got a breath to breathe, you are not there. Don't take a permanent Sabbath. No, we all need to take Sabbath breaks and you need to take vacations and that's fine and well and good. And if you can take a few more as you get a little older than you could take when you were younger, fine. But don't let your life become a Sabbath uh, because you're still breathing and that means there's work to do. There's kingdom endeavors to be involved in. Paul says this. I love this analogy. He says living, living for, for Jesus, living in the kingdom is like running a race. And you run to get the highest prize. I've done a few races in my time, and so I, I know what he's talking about there. And in a race where you're really trying to get the highest place and get the best time, you don't coast the last mile or the last 100 yards or the last 10 yards. No, if anything, you pour it out when you're coming down the finish line. You lean into that finish tape. Uh, that's how you run the race, and so it is in the kingdom life. As long as you're breathing, there is a race to be run and a race to be won. Don't start coasting the last 10 or 20 or 40 yards. No, lead in to that finish line. Give it all you got as you're running down the final stretch here. It's fine and necessary to take occasional vacations, but life is not a vacation. It's not. Life is not a vacation. Life is a war zone. It is a war zone and there's a war to fight, a real one. See, it's just, no one in history has thought this way up until very recently in the affluent West, that we have a right to coast the last 20, it's the, it's the insanity of our culture where, you know, we do, I, I got to keep from getting too far off track here, but it just so bothers me. We take the first part of life and the last part of life and we kind of take it out of the equation and only your quote unquote productive years really count, 18 to 65. Before then, well, you're not really a, a full adult, so, you know, uh, nothing's really expected of you, which is really short-changing things. A lot of the heroes of the Bible were uh, pre-teens or uh, before the age of 18. And then we take the last 20, 30, 40 years of your life, which could be the most productive, and we sort of take that out of the equation. Now you're just supposed to sit around and get older and die. It's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. And, and where did we ever get that idea? Think about this. What kind of mind frame would come up with this where in a world where there are right now close to a billion people that are, are starving to death, in a world where there's massive suffering all over the place, in a world where there's lost souls all over the place, in a world where there's massive kingdom work to be done, somebody gets the idea that they have a right to coast the last 30 years of your life. Wherever that mind frame came from, it's not the kingdom. The kingdom says this, as long as you've got a breath to breathe, you've got a purpose, you've got a reason for being here, and God wants to use you. And so I say to senior citizens, or all who are, are coming to the time of retirement or preparing for retirement, it's fine to quit your job if you can, wonderful, and to take extra time with family and friends, that's wonderful. But for God's sake, and I mean that literally, for God's sake, don't retire. For God's sake, don't get out of the game. For God's sake, don't take yourself off the, the front lines of the warfare. For God's sake, don't get less passionate about doing kingdom work. Now's the time where you got more time to invest in the kingdom and to live out with outrageous generosity and to be praying more. The kingdom needs you. God needs you. Never coast. Never coast. Yeah, you'll have time to coast when you die. <laughs> Amen. You'll have plenty of time to coast when you die. But you're not dead yet. You're not dead yet. No, you're happy. So, in fact, you know what? There's been a lot of studies done that show this, that, that the worst thing you can do for yourself is, is to uh, have this meaningless sort of idea of retirement where you're just going to golf or fish or whatever, take cruises. 
Uh, and, and studies show that, that your life expectancy lowers when you do that. Uh, your your, your, your uh, uh, amount of joy in your life lowers. Uh, you have some people fall into depressions uh, when they do that. And the reason is because we're created for a purpose. We've got a reason. Uh, we long for meaning. Uh, and, and so playing solitaire for the last 30 years of your life, it's not the highest calling I've got on your life. No, no, no. Do something with it. Do something with it. When you take your last breath, fine. Now, take all the cruises you want for eternity. Until then, there's work to be done. Which leads to my third point. It actually doesn't, but I don't have a segue. So here's question number three. <laughs> question number three. Is declaring bankruptcy a sin? Yeah, there's a little murmur in the crowd. <laughs> a lot of people are wrestling with this. Honestly, a lot of people here at Woodland Hills Church are wrestling with this. And I'm going to, again, shoot straight. I, I will be as balanced as I can. I'm going to give you my perspective. Uh, take it for what it's worth, but just know that it is the right perspective. So, uh, you know, just showing that. Okay, look at bankruptcy. It's basically a legal way of saying you can't pay your debts. And there's different kinds of bankruptcy, but, but uh, ultimate bankruptcy is... It's a legal way of saying you can't pay your debts, so the creditors have to swallow the loss. And the question is, is that ever appropriate for kingdom people? And this is not at all an academic question. A couple of years ago, right when this uh, recession was first starting to hit, uh, there's a couple, um, and they had made some decisions that they wish they hadn't made. That's, that's life. It goes like that. But there's also some circumstances outside of their control with his employment and stuff. Bottom line is that their finances bottomed out, and they were facing uh, the very real possibility of being destitute out on the street. If they declared bankruptcy, well, they'd lose their credit for 10 years and... Um, uh, some of the stuff they have would probably be repossessed, but at least they'd have a house, they wouldn't be on the street, they wouldn't be destitute, and they could start over. If they didn't declare bankruptcy, well, the chances are that they'd lose everything, and they would be out on the street and be destitute. So they're wondering, is this biblical? Because the reality of the situation seems that you know, common sense would say we ought to do it, but on the other hand, the Bible puts such a premium on honoring our vows. How do we balance this? Or should we even try to balance this? I'm going to try to give a balanced answer here. I'll say two things. First, it is clearly and unequivocally wrong to enter into financial agreements with the intent not to pay them. That is dishonest. To take out credit when you know you're going to declare bankruptcy or something of the sort, that is dishonest. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Meaning just this. When you say yes, mean yes. And when you say no, mean no. There's no place for a kingdom person to have duplicity, deception, dishonesty. I heard of one guy who... Uh, was in a real financial straits, and, and he was a churchgoer and all that, but got into a lot of financial straits. But he also kind of was waking up to the way that uh, the capitalistic system is not altogether just. And there's a certain element of predatorial lending and, and stuff that goes on, and he felt like he was uh, a victim of the system, and to some degree, as I said earlier, we are. But what he decided to do was to stick it to the system. And so he just went out and started buying things on credit left and right, just, just charging to the hilt. And when one credit card got used up, he'd open another credit card. And he was amazed that they kept on giving him credit cards and loans and, and whatnot. Woo-hoo! Kid candy shop. So he buys all this stuff for about a year and then declares bankruptcy. That what he, that's what he intended to do the whole time he was charging stuff up for that year. Well, you know, you can go ahead and say the system is corrupt, and I wouldn't dispute you on that, but that, folks, is stealing. That is stealing. And it's not just stealing from the banks. It's stealing from everybody because now the bank has to pass that loss, loss on to, to everybody else. So everybody's going to be paying for your little you know, free-for-all. 
And, you know, he, he, some of his stuff got repossessed and whatever, but he still had a whole lot left over. He's cashing in at other people's expense. He's ripping off the bank. He's ripping off his neighbors. He's ripping off everybody now because everybody's taxes goes to uh, subsidize some of the banks. That is stealing. That's dishonest. And there's no place in the kingdom for that. But that is, I believe, very different from a person who finds, because of circumstances, they cannot meet an obligation they had originally intended to meet. And I want you to follow me on this here, okay? Because I'm aware that, that for some folks, you know, what I say right now is going to strongly influence, if not determine, a decision they're going to make. I said last week that the heart of capitalism is credit, this concept of credit. And the word credit comes from the Latin word, which means to trust or to have confidence in. And ultimately, what capitalism is about is, is having this confidence in the future. The future will always improve. And so we borrow from the future to up our standard of living now and to uh, invest in ways that will create a better future for ourselves and for, for our kids. And when so, so when a lender lends money and a borrower receives that loaned money, you're both expressing confidence in the future. You're both believing in the future. And if the future pans out the way you both hope, everybody profits. The lender you know, makes money because they get the interest, and the one who borrowed uh, makes money because uh, their, their, their investment paid off uh, in whatever company or whatever they invested in. The future paid for a better present. When both parties go into a credit agreement, they're both, they're both saying we have faith in the future. But the future is, to some degree, uncertain. And so both parties are saying, we're taking a risk here. That's understood. The future may not pan out the way you hope, and so both the lender and the borrower are going to suffer loss. That risk is built into the very nature of capitalism. It's a venture. It's a risk-taking thing. It is, to some degree, gambling. The whole system is gambling. Now, our economic system allows for bankruptcy as a last resort uh, institution or program to ensure that the risk of capitalism is shared by both the borrower and the lender. Bankruptcy is there to ensure, as a last resort, only a last resort thing, to ensure that the risk is shared by the borrower and the lender. If you go back to the 19th, 18th, and 18th century of America, and really throughout much of history, uh, leading up to the, the, the very recent times, they didn't have legal bankruptcy. And so what happened is that the borrower had to absorb all the risk. If you, couldn't, if you defaulted on a loan, you could be thrown into debtor's prison, what was called debtor's prison, where now you had to work off, often for the rest of your life, work off the debt that you owed. And the families of the, the folks were virtually sold into slavery to pay off the debt. And since wealthy people and banks had very little to lose, they were in a position where they could take advantage of desperate poor people and give them loans which they pretty much knew the, the poor folks couldn't uh, repay, maybe on terms that the poor folks couldn't really understand. But they knew that they would recoup it one way or another because even if these people can't repay it, well, then now they're going to be thrown into prison and I'll have lifelong slaves. And so you had predatorial lending going on and the rich preying upon the poor, and that was not right. And so bankruptcy was put in place to protect borrowers from worst-case scenarios. Borrowers now have, through bankruptcy, a last resort protection. If the future doesn't pan out as way, the way that both the lender and the borrower hoped, well, now you both suffer losses. The borrower suffers loss because they ruin their credit for the next 10 years, and a lot of their, their stuff will be repossessed. But they won't be destitute. They won't be thrown on, uh, thrown on the street. 
and they can start over again. The lender will suffer loss because they can't recoup all of the investment that they had. And so what we need to know is that lenders now factor that risk into their giving loans. Uh, when they set their fees and, 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 and interest rates, they, that, that, that risk is, 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 is worked into that equation. It's part of the system. So the bottom line here is this. A follower of Jesus should never, and should never say yes to a loan if you don't mean yes. If you don't intend to pay it, you shouldn't do it. And a, a follower of Jesus, a kingdom person, should, if at all possible, honor every covenant you've entered into and repay whatever loans you've taken, if it's at all possible. But if you're in a position where you can't realistically repay the loan without ending up on the street, making you and your family destitute, the system has provided a last resort safety net, and I don't believe kingdom people should feel guilty about taking that, if you have to, if you have to. I'm going to say one final thing, and, and it really applies not to just to this question, but to all three questions. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's a foundational piece of biblical wisdom I want us to all lock into. Whether you're thinking about declaring bankruptcy, you have declared bankruptcy, you're just dealing with a lot of debt in your life, or, or things are going really well for you right now, this is a piece of biblical wisdom we need to lock in. And simply this. The less debt you have, the better off you are. The less debt you have the better off you are. The Bible says the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. And granted, that was spoken at a time uh, that, uh, you know, the, the wealthy could prey on the poor and, and make them literal slaves. And that's been true throughout history up until very recently, until bankruptcy was, was instituted. But it still is, it, it manifests a truth. The extent to which we owe somebody something, we are, we are indebted to them. By definition, we're, we're in bondage to them. We're, the, the extent to which we borrow from somebody else against our future, to that degree that, that, that institution or person owns a share of our future. The Bible calls us to be free. So whatever we can do to dig out of debt, and whatever we can do to stay as free of debt as possible, in Jesus' name, I implore you to do that. The less debt, the better. And I'm aware that, that it can be more complicated than that. Economists will tell us that there's a world of difference. You know, there's good debt and bad debt. Uh, there's ways that you can actually make money by taking on debt. I got that. And, and, and the economists will tell us that there's a world of difference between taking on a debt for things that appreciate in value, like houses and some would argue education, versus things that depreciate like, like everything else. Uh, you know, and, and there's a world of difference there, and I, and I got that. And there's also some advantage to having a credit card if you can pay it off month by month and therefore don't have to pay the interest on it. Uh, there's a lot of advantage. My wife and I try to do that. You get frequent flyer miles and all sorts of other kind of stuff. So fine, if you can pay it off at the end of the month. But the general principle remains. All other things being equal. Biblical wisdom stipulates this. It's wiser to save in the present to purchase something in the future than it is to borrow from the, yes, uncertain future to purchase something in the present. I'll say it again. It's wiser to save in the present to purchase something in the future than it is to borrow from the uncertain future to purchase something in the present. I want to end by just praying that the Holy Spirit will seal this on our hearts and on the hearts of those who are listening uh, through podcasts or some other means. 
And as I do that, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here and you have any need whatsoever you'd like to pray for, have prayer for, whether it's finances or something else, come, come on down and, and pray with these folks. You can kneel at the altar if you want. But I want to end with this prayer. Holy Spirit, seal this on our hearts. Holy Spirit, give us the wisdom of God regarding our finances. Holy Spirit, uh, reveal to us, and maybe use community to do it, how much we should earn and, and how much we should save and how much we should give. Holy Spirit, give us the fortitude, that fire inside that is willing to defy the beast and buck the system and break free. Holy Spirit, give us, give us the wisdom of ants to be setting aside uh, what you tell us to set aside. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would make us have hearts that have our, our entire being under, the Lord, under your Lord, Lordship, the reign of God, including, perhaps in this culture most difficultly, our finances. We submit it all to you. We acknowledge that every penny comes from you, belongs to you, and we just ask for your wisdom and character and how we steward it. Help us, Lord, to... Put on display the outrageous generosity of our King and the wisdom of our King by how we spend our time, our talents, and our money. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and build the kingdom.